Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to the Chest, the flagship podcast of the Touch Bar. It's good. Only one of us thinks that, Alex. It's, it's true. Two? <laughs> I, okay, one thing that is true is that I became friends with a very famous record producer on mm. Instagram because of the Touch Bar. That was the best humble brag I've heard. It's pretty good. <laughs> who, who? Okay, so Neli and David Guetta are best yeah. friends. <laughs> No, Oakfelder, you should uh, follow him on Instagram. He's Orchestra. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, he's he's super cool. We're okay. just like dad friends. We just like like pictures of each other's kids now. Um, this for you. But he did a video with us just about how to make music with a Mac during one of our music video series. And he was like, I'll, and he was using the touch bar in his computer. And I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I love this thing. And he was like swiping through logic on the touch bar. And we just started... Wow. That's it. That's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That's beautiful. Yeah. I should have talked to him. A beautiful dad friendship. Yeah. He doesn't post about the touch bar on his Instagram. It's mostly like him doing recording artist stuff and pictures. <laughs> I think if more people had, it probably wouldn't have gone away. Yeah, if more Grammy award-winning musicians were like the touch bar rules, I think we'd be in a very different spot in America in 2023. Only It would only be on the 16th. Hi, I'm your friend, Eli. Alex Kranz is here. Hi, I'm your friend who loves the touch bar and the Texas Rangers who are now— have a World Series pennant. I don't know how the World Series works, but I've been waiting 30 years. It's awesome. You've been waiting 30 years and learned none of the vocabulary <laughs> none along of it. the way. <laughs> none of it. I learned who Nolan Ryan and Jose Canseco were in 1993. Nice. And nothing until this year. And apparently the Rangers rule. You didn't miss that much between the two, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm okay. <laughs> I follow yeah. one of those threads accounts. It's like freezing cold sports takes. And they had one about the Rangers. And I was like, I don't know who any of those names are or what baseball is. David Pierce is here. What's up, guys? I'm in my sick gamer YouTube channel setup. David's in our DC office, the Vox Media DC office, which AKA is— AKA our sick gamer YouTube channel setup. I feel like I said that already. That office is mostly populated by, like, the corporate staff of the company and then mm-hmm. Vox.com and a little bit of SP Nation, I think. And, of course, when you think of Vox.com, you think of gamer lights. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. I will say I am here because I lost power today— just out of nowhere on a sunny day in the middle of an interview for the Vergecast with two of the people who made Planet Earth 3. We were having an unbelievable time talking about cool drone photography in caves, which someday 
Lord willing, you will hear on the first cast. <laughs> uh, and my power just disappeared. And now I'm here. I hate it. It's been a day. I took a meeting with a developer who's making a cool app that David was supposed to be on. And I said, David lost power. And he looked at the weather and said, it's not raining out there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Very no, good. it's not. Bunch of news this week. There was an Apple event, which we, we should talk about. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about this event, uh, and particularly how it was shot. Oh. Oh, my. Sometimes The Verge, you're on a publication, you're lucky if everyone's talking about one story. We had, like, three different groups of people sort of, like, up in arms about three different stories this week. And I was like, oh, we are the only tech site that remains on the internet. <laughs> There's no one else to yell at but us. <laughs> um, but Apple event, new Macs, we should talk about those. We published the next installment of our big Google package about sort of where we are on the web and mm -hmm. what's going on with search now that AI is coming. I would say that really got a lot of people going, and those people happen to be search engine optimization experts, so their comments are impeccably formatted for discoverability. <laughs> That's true. It's a nice reminder every once in a while. Like, do you have those moments where, like, a, a, a corner of the internet wakes up in response to something, and you're like, "Oh, I didn't even know you were there." Yeah, yeah. It's like, like when when the knitters get really angry, you're just like, <laughs> "Oh, all the people who love to knit, they just hang out together." That's yeah. so cool. That's not a when. That's a permanent case with the knitting that community. Is true. Just the knitting constant rage. They're holding times. needles, and they're not afraid to use them, sir. Yeah, but it was just like it was like we we accidentally walked into the SEO bar. This week no, we in barged into way. it and said, you all suck. <laughs> that's what we did, yeah, and I, I don't want to shy away from it. We'll get to that. Uh, more Google News. They're about to go to trial in the antitrust case with Epic. David was in the other antitrust trial this week. Sundar Pichai testified. We got to talk about that. Uh, there's some spicy documents Ooh. from Apple that were revealed in that case. That's pretty good. Spicy documents. I love a spicy document. I love a spicy document. Eddie Q is like... Put some hot sauce on that before you send it out. <laughs> the little, the little into cold storage for the prosecutors to find ten years from now. Uh, and then there's a bunch of streaming news. Yeah, people are buying things. Prices are inevitably going up. And we got a lightning round, which is still not sponsored. And I implore you, major American shipmaker, to call our financial sec, our business, our business development person, make it happen. Uh, yeah, there's there's some good stuff in lightning round too. Okay, let's start with the Apple event. Scary fast. I would say uh, I was very disappointed. There were not more Halloween jokes. Uh, there were. A, a you were also just wrong. Like we should just call this what it, you were. You were wrong, and I feel like this is this is the time when you should atone for how wrong you were about what Apple yeah, was doing here. Yeah, where is your scary costume today, Neilai? Uh, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> I did dress I dressed my parents were here for trick or treat I dressed them up as a witch and a warlock uh -huh. uh, which means I put hats on them yes and that's and then my dad was like oh no I lost the hat <laughs> uh, <laughs> what a surprise uh -huh. um, my prediction if I recall this correctly would just be like over the top TV production they're going to compete with Monday Night Football Craig Federighi doing a vampire voice the whole time mm -hmm. that did not happen and I want to make it clear I was wrong about that but also that I was right in that it should have been what happened because the actual announcements were so lackluster that Craig Federighi doing a vampire voice, I think, would have been more fulfilling to people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Neela, you posted at one point on threads, I think, something to the effect of Apple has lost the plot of why people actually watch these things. What did you mean? This one in particular. So if you go back and watch a Steve Jobs Apple event, he was the master of making you feel 
Like, one, he understood the problem, and two, only he could solve it, and three, the product was cool as hell, Mm -hmm. right? And that here is the solution to the product. And that first part, I understand the problem, is the – I I think as a person who came up covering these events and watching them unfold and watching them grow to what they are now, that's the part that's gone, but it's also the thing that was the most fulfilling – Everyone knows the first iPhone event, right? The problem is all these buttons down here. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make a touchscreen. Like, and he put up the problem. He was like, here's a picture of other people's idiot problems, and I'm going to fix it for you. And this is how smartphones are going to work now. He did that, like, all the time. And Apple traditionally kind of does that, right? They, like, identify the problem, and they're like, here's how we're going to solve it. And this one in particular, I just felt like identified no problems. It was like, our, the problem we're solving is that the chip is even faster. <laughs> right? And then, and then you look at how yeah. they were trying to sell it. They were like, this one is for creative professionals. If you're coming from an Intel Mac, it'll be 11 times faster. They just weren't solving any problems with the products. It was just like pure marketing. There was just a moment in the middle of it. I actually didn't put it on threads. I just said that to you privately. You doxed me. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, my bad. Whatever. Uh, I'll say. I'll say it now. There was just a moment in that where I was like, "This could be any company." Mm. Like this is how basically every company markets their products now. They're just like, "Look at how good it is." It was just an AMD keynote. AMD also loves to do an evening keynote. Everybody loves to wear all black. There's usually some leather involved, but not in a fun way. And then they talk about a bunch of processors and show a bunch of charts. So Qualcomm had an event the same week. Allison Johnson was in Hawaii for the event. She wrote a great piece about it, Mm -hmm. Festival of Marketing. And the piece is basically about the Festival of Marketing. Qualcomm's processor graphs are the same as Apple's. They're the same unlabeled graph. And you could argue that they're just copying Apple or Apple's copying Qualcomm or there's a long history of these graphs. But just from the perspective of are these events different? Do these companies act differently? The answer is, oh, they're converging. They're all converging on the same sort of marketing. I don't mean to say that the products are bad. I have a 16-inch M1 Pro MacBook Pro. It is the best computer I have ever owned. You, you put a better chip in it. You do some software tweaks to make it 600 nits instead of 500. I'm happy. As long as the battery life lasts, as long as this one does. The problem is they have so fundamentally solved the problem yeah. That they're they're just going they're kind of reverting to marketing. And they've been doing it honestly for a little while now. Like it's it's been a couple of years of they're not really solving a problem, they're inventing problems to solve on stage. And so yeah, I think we see that a lot with with a lot of the camera stuff they're doing. They're like, "Don't you hate that you can't see every fiber of a sweater?" <laughs> and it's like three people hate that, but most people are fine. And it, it I, I do agree with you that in the beginning it really felt like there was a problem. And they were solving it. And in some cases, it was the problem was Apple's own making because Apple was at that time like a pretty crummy company and it got better. And now it's just like, okay, you're at the top of your game. What do you do next? And they're like, we do it at night. Right. And that's not enough. And mostly they're, uh, mostly that we have solved a problem involved the introduction of a new category, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So the iPod, watch the iPod launch event, right? He's like a thousand songs in your pocket. Creative jukebox in the audience fury. Right. He put up a picture of that thing. It was like, this thing sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like he really did. He was like, here's the MP3 players of the of the day. Here's the ones that are flash memory. Here's the hard drive ones. These suck. I made a good one. Yeah. And and then every iPod, every year after, he invented a reason well, that was like- why they were bad and they like fix it. Whatever. Uh the iPad, if you watch the iPad one, it is 
remarkable, actually, because he's like, you have a phone and a laptop, and there's some there's space in between. He brought like a comfy armchair yeah. on stage. Like that was that was the thing. It was the armchair computer, right? Like that was he he did such a good job of that. Yeah, yeah. He, he had a show to put on for you. In, in you know whatever Steve Jobs is Steve Jobs. I'm just saying that was the thing. Mm-hmm. And I think Apple has now gotten to this place where these are in, it's an infomercial. We all sat around and watched a 23 minute infomercial the other night. It was produced like one. It was shot like one. I understand people have a lot of feelings about that, but it was a TV show. Yeah. They should have done more vampire voices. I will. Tim Cook kind of did one with the first good evening, and Johnny Shruji was like, welcome to my lab. And he was clearly, <laughs> if they had let him, he would have done the whole thing in the voice. Yes. But those are the only two I got out of it. There were some eyes blinking in the background, whatever. Um, all, the, all I'm saying, and this is the most minor of criticism, because we should talk, actually talk about the products. The show of it, Ever since it's become a TV show, mm-hmm. has veered into just sort of regular marketing and not the Apple will identify a thing that everyone is frustrated with or has never thought of and show you something. The Vision Pro is arguably that product right now, right? It's the new category. It's the new use cases. But they didn't have a problem to solve for it. <laughs> That's I would say is the problem. Yeah. Um and we'll, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I don't. We don't need to over-index on whether the twenty-three minute last-minute Mac infomercial was like the best Apple keynote of all. I'm when I say they've lost the plot on why people watch these. It's if you just watch them now. The only problem they have to solve is like five years ago you bought an Intel Mac and now you should buy a new one, and that's not a great problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is why they're leaning ever harder into pros, right? And that's like that was so much of what this event was about. I just keep thinking about when they launched the Mac Pro. And we were getting demos of it and seeing how things worked. The demo was literally Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> that it's like, this is these computers are so good. Imagine if you were making the most complicated movie ever made in history. You would need this Mac Pro. And you're just like, all right, sick. Like, how many Chrome tabs can it handle? Like, what? <laughs> I just, it's, it, they, they, we've just gotten into these tiny niches where this stuff, especially having to do this every year, right? Like, if Apple only had to tell this story every five years, it wouldn't be that hard. Telling everybody who bought a computer in 2018 why the M3 MacBook Pro is going to blow your mind is not complicated. But they have to keep telling this story year after year after year, and and it does, you can just see it get sort of smaller and smaller and smaller, the people who are sort of actually meaningfully going to notice the thing over last year. And again, in a lot of ways, that's a really good thing. Like, these are great, super mature products. It just it just makes this particular job much harder, I think. Yeah, I, th- that's why Qualcomm does it in Hawaii. Is because <laughs> yeah, because they, they ran into the same issue. Like, all of the processor companies have been dealing with this for a very long time, and Apple's now having to reckon with it, too. We're like, yeah, these speed improvements are nice, but they're mainly nice for when you look back five years, and most people in our industry, don't care about that. And a lot of our readers probably don't care about it. Like, my brother, who has a five-year-old computer, might care. But but the, those people who who tune into these events to see the next big thing don't care about a small speed bump. Yeah. I will say that there was one problem they created that they solved to great acclaim, mm. uh, which was the touch bar oh. and the butterfly keyboard. The butterfly uh, keyboard. And I'll the give you. utter lack of ports on the MacBook Pro. And they, they fixed that a couple of years ago. Yeah. Again, best computer I've ever owned. And then this year was the end of the 13-inch MacBook Pro with the touch bar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we, we've kind of been memorializing it since it stopped getting a lot of the same updates as everybody else. It was kind of sitting off in the corner by itself, clearly, on its last legs. Yeah. 
But this year they were like, no, we're done. We're out. Yeah, we're putting the stake in the heart. We're, we're salting the earth. We're closing the door. We're done with it. And it's a bummer. Good vampire imagery. Yeah. I, I'm bringing it. Apple didn't, but I did. <laughs> uh, I, I, I still liked the concept of the thing. I still wish they had, like, leaned in on the touch bar. But the touch bar was really a placeholder for the, the M1. Like, the touch bar came out because they wanted to show everybody they cared about laptops. Because in 2016, they didn't care about laptops. They were running... All the MacBook posts had Haswells in them from like 2014 or 2013. And, and they were like, no, no, we care. We care. So look, we've got this cool new way of thinking about computers. We're putting a touch bar in it. And everybody's like, cool. What can we do with it? And they're like, we'll get back to you. Yeah. But it's cool. And then a few years later, they're like, we've got the M1. And this is really cool. And everybody's like, oh, that is cool. I want that. And so I always feel like it was just a placeholder to keep people invested in Apple laptops until the real deal showed up a few years later. Right. That's a very kind way of thinking about the touch bar. I was just, <laughs> uh, you know, when you when you care about something that deeply, <laughs> you're always looking for the good. Yeah, yeah. I think they made a giant mistake and refused to admit it for several years. <laughs> that honestly, I think they th- that was the period where they thought the future of computing was the iPad, mm-hmm. and they were pushing everyone towards the iPad. And the Mac was languishing. Yeah, and there and everyone thought you need to put a touchscreen on the Mac. And they were like, I, no. Still Maybe some people kind of do. There's a Bloomberg report, by the way, this week or the week before, where Garmin said a forthcoming touchscreen Mac. Oh, what? Wow. This is a real thing. Hey, who knows? We'll s- yeah, um, one day. But right, right, this was the height of what you might call Apple's touch era. Uh huh. And yeah. they, they weren't going to do it on the Mac because they didn't want to cannibalize the iPad in any way. So they're like, you want a touchscreen on the Mac? Here's a weird little one. <laughs> also, the keyboard is garbage and it has no ports. And People resolutely refused to let the Mac die until they re-upped the MacBook Air, and then eventually the M1 came out. And then the weird thing uh, was they did the good MacBook Pro, the 14-inch MacBook Pro. Mm -hmm. They did the MacBook Air. The MacBook Air got all the way to M2, and this weird, dumb 13-inch MacBook Pro with the touch bar just persisted. I want to— It's like two years— Beyond its expiration date, at least. Yeah, I want to know who, who are the people. Who were the people still buying it there at the end? Some people. I don't know, man. We we wrote a story a couple of weeks ago about somebody who bought a Wii U the other That's day. Like, there's people out there. <laughs> That's there's there's people out yeah. there doing stuff. But no, I think I think Apple made two mistakes with the Touch Bar, which I do not believe still to this day was a fundamentally bad idea. It was a good concept. Mistake number one: Look down at your laptop right now, and if you're in your car. Imagine a laptop. (laughs) If you're in your car and you have the ability to look down at your laptop right now, pull over (laughs) in your car. And also call the Vergecast hotline because you are our people. Uh, Do you see see how you have all the function buttons Mm -hmm. on on your laptop? Mm -hmm. Do you see how there's still some space above it between where there's just space? Put the touch bar there. (laughs) That's the answer. Like, they said, what if we took away a bunch of buttons you love and replaced it with mostly nothing? Like, that's terrible. That's not... That's not anything. I still believe to this day that if the first version of the touch bar had kept the escape key, the touch bar had like a 60% chance to be successful. But it was because it didn't have the escape key and all of a sudden this very basic thing that professional computer users do all day, every day became harder because your finger couldn't find it anymore. Like instant disaster. Yeah. That's mistake number one was getting rid of keys people use to add this weird thing that no one ever asked for. Mistake number two uh-huh. was... Stopping 
investing in it. Like Apple has a good history of saying, we care about this thing and thus you developers should figure out what to do with it. And if it does that long enough, it usually works. And on the touch bar, for like 15 minutes, they were like, come build cool apps. And then they were like, ah, never mind. We're probably going to bail on this idea. Anyway. No, so they had a huge problem here. They do this all the time. The best example is iPhone, right? They bring a, a high-end feature to an iPhone Pro, and the next year the regular iPhone gets it, and then everyone has it. Yeah. And then developers are like, wow, look at all this cool stuff Apple made. I've got some ideas in here too. They never brought the touch bar out of the MacBook Pro. Exactly. Or, and even out of the— Because was, they knew it was bad. Oh. They were watching all these pro users stare at their horrible keyboards, and they thought to themselves, we cannot give this to the general public. Hence mistake number one. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can't get rid of the function keys. Yeah. It's like if Apple was like, look, we built this cool touch bar, but also we just scrambled all your letter keys around. Like, no, don't do that. Look, it's dead. Here, here, it's amazing to me that we've spent this much time on the touch bar, which I have finally vanquished. <laughs> they announced like three new processors and four new computers. No, we talked about all that on Wednesday. Who cares? You know what? We talked earlier about how they didn't solve a problem during this event. They did. They got rid of Not the touch bar. Not having enough processors. Yeah. No, they got rid of the touch bar. They <laughs> yeah. solved a problem. If they had led with that. Like, see, that's a good Halloween show. Yeah, Tim Cook dressed up as the Grim Reaper, <laughs> chasing Eddie Q in a Touch Bar outfit down the hallway. I would have watched two hours of that. That's pretty good. I probably would have. I would have pre-ordered at the end. I don't want to watch that show, but I would have watched gifs of it. <laughs> I would watch the TikTok clips. It's pronounced gif. Um, so, if you want the deep dive on the main announcements, Wednesday shows there for you quickly. They basically spec bumped the 14 inch and 16 inch MacBook Pro. They spec bumped the iMac. They did not do a bigger screen size. They spent an uh, like an inordinate amount of time saying that 24.5 inches, 4.5K display was perfect. Sounded a lot like the touch bar is going to revolutionize computers. Yeah. It was just a lot of like, this is the perfect size in between 4K and 5K. And it's like, is it? Or is it just the size in between 4K and 5K? It's just the one you already made a lot of. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's I am I'm dying. Uh, because I really wanted a new 27-inch iMac to replace my my 2015 27-inch iMac mm -hmm. that I already rescued from its planned obsolescence in our studio. Couldn't you just get like a Mac Studio and slap it on but the then end? I have to, yeah, but then I have to like buy a new monitor, all this stuff. Anyway, we they just sent me a new USB audio interface uh -huh. for recording at home because my old one is kind of flaking out. Yeah, I, I'm it's, aware. It's USB-C only. <laughs> so I've got... <laughs> I got to get a new Mac. So I was like, I'll just buy the new 27-inch iMac. Have to get a new Mac. That's the I gotta only solution. I got to do something solution. now. <laughs> but now, now but I'm not going to buy this little baby Mac. Yeah, my yeah. in-laws had a 27-inch iMac from, I think, 2011, possibly even like 2009. They had this thing forever. Uh, and it finally got to the point where it's like, they tried to load the tax website and it just didn't. It was like, this this computer is a security risk. Like, we can't do this anymore, guys. Uh so they've been asking me for like a year and a half, when is the 27-inch iMac coming out? And I kept saying, I went from, I think it's going to happen, give it a minute, to I don't think this is going to happen because the Mac Studio and the Studio Display are the answers. So I got them to buy a Mac Mini and a monitor, which I actually think is a cheaper combo and works just as well. But setting this thing up for them gave me like a real... Uh, new understanding of why the iMac is great. Yeah. Because I had to buy them a webcam. We had to go through this whole crazy rigmarole with their keyboard because you can't set up a Mac 
without a keyboard and you can't connect a keyboard without setting up your Mac. So you need a wired keyboard, which no one has because it's 2023. No way. And I'm not a PC gamer. That's real. Um, Yeah, it does not like Bluetooth. I always have to scramble. The advice they give you on the internet is keep a wired keyboard around just in case you have to set up a computer. Full chaos. Uh, So I went through this whole thing and like we eventually got it set up and I was like, boy, it would have been really nice if I could have just like pulled a thing out of a box, plugged it in and turned it on. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I'm an iMac person. That's why. Although my iMac has all this stuff plugged into it, including an ancient flaky USB audio interface that needs to be replaced. So you got to buy a new Mac. (laughs) So now I got to buy a new Mac. Yeah. That's, that's, that's called Verge logic right there. <laughs> it, really, it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Uh, I'm just going to buy like a 2017 iMac with a USB-C. <laughs> this is my idea. Um, all right, let's talk about shot on iPhone for two minutes. Okay. So at the end of the event, Apple puts up a label. It says shot on iPhone. Yeah. I want to. I, I know why they're able to do this now. We will come to that. And then a little bit later, they release some behind the scenes, and they show massive production like, cool. Like, big cool lenses stuff. bolted to the front of iPhones and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Big lights, big lenses. You know, there's like drone shots and CGI. It's a TV. They made a TV show. Yep. Mm-hmm. Apple is a TV company. They, like a high end one. They made, that. They made a yeah. TV show. Great. Uh, so we have a story that's like, here's what they mean when they say shot on iPhone. And the story, it contains almost no take. There's, I will get to it, but it contains almost no take. It's just, here's all the stuff. Here's the. If you want to do this, it costs us much money. People are freaking out that we're, like, accusing Apple of being liars. And it's like, no, this is just, at the end of the video, it doesn't show you the stuff. It's just a shot on iPhone. Yeah. And yeah. the very obvious thing that they want you to think is that you can do this with an iPhone. And then it's cool. They show you behind the scenes of what you need to do if you just want to do an iPhone. They, and they did the same thing with uh, Olivia Rodrigo. Right? She has a music video. They shot an iPhone. They're running national ads during football games showing the thing in a gimbal like they're not hiding the ball but shot on iphone is meant to make you feel good about the iphone not make you consider the production it it's just marketing yeah kind of i feel great about iphones i don't know (laughs) I, i bear no ill will towards the iphone because they put it in a gimbal but the point of it is like look how cool the iphone is if you had an iphone you too could be some combination of Vampire Tim Cook and Olivia Rodrigo. That's how I feel every time I pick up my That's iPhone. the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Wh- whatever. I-, I think people are upset about this for, like, the I'm smarter than you reason. Mm-hmm. Like, you know it. Inst- like, if you're a Verge reader, you know instinctively that Apple has a lot of lights right? and when they shoot the thing on the iPhone. And the idea that other people would know that. And that would be surprising to them and make them feel feelings about Apple just made a bunch of Apple people mad. That's like basically my summation of this controversy. Whatever. It's like. All it did was make me realize that all of those shot on iPhone photos might also. Have have had lights. Have had lights. So here's the thing. You can do, if you give me enough lights, I can make any camera look good. Actually, not me. If you give Becca enough lights, she can make it. <laughs> yes. uh, that's great. Like, that's well known. Any person who has played with photography knows, like, give me enough lights and lenses and stuff. You can pretty much make any camera look good. I think the reason they're able to shot an iPhone with the iPhone 15 Pro Max or whatever is not the camera system. It's that they can get the footage off the phone at USB-C speeds yep. and it shoots in log. Which is software. I bet. I, I bet if Apple wanted to write a custom version of iOS that could shoot and log, they could do it. 
but the 15 can now do it for everybody. And it has a, the hardware capability of getting the footage off the phone. And so these are two things that are very important for pros. And Apple's shutting off, like, look, this sensor and this thing, and the, the thing is good enough where you can replace a professional camera in some contexts if you have enough lights and professional things. But that's, like, a very hard thing to communicate. Yeah. Like, we, we've changed the port to USB-C, so now you can shoot a professional production on the phone and you don't have to wait six days to get the files off the phone. I would say not the world's greatest marketing message. Shot an iPhone, very good. Yeah. Yeah. I think to me the, the challenge is always that when we talk about smartphone shooting, it's it's kind of two different things that actually are totally different, but everybody kind of wants to have the best of both worlds. So on the one side you have something like this, which is like a very high-end production. And basically all they did was take out a fancy camera, like they they took out a Canon camera and put in an iPhone. Otherwise, the whole setup is essentially the same. And that's actually what they say in the behind-the-scenes videos, that one of the coolest things about it is how little of the process they had to change. They can still see the footage on all their monitors. They can still do this stuff in real time. They can get all the stuff that they need. Like, plug-and-play into an otherwise very expensive professional setup is one side of thing, right? The other thing we talk about with smartphone photos and video is that it lets you do stuff you couldn't do otherwise, right? Like, I remember Anthony Bourdain's team used to talk about this, that, like, when they started shooting with iPhones in restaurants instead of big TV cameras, it changed the vibe. And you can just get places you couldn't otherwise. Like, nature photographers talk about this, too, that, like, you can get up close to things with a phone in a way that you can't with a giant camera with a giant lens. And so we have this idea that when we say things like shot on iPhone— the, the mental image is like a person holding a phone up in front of their face. That's obviously not how it works. Like, no professional anything is actually shot that way. But the mental image that I think Apple and everyone else wants you to have when you think about that is that it's essentially Tim Cook standing there and, like, I don't know, Craig Federighi standing there just, like, pointing his <laughs> iPhone at Tim. Uh, if you think about it for one and a half seconds, yeah. that's obviously not what's going on. But, like— and, and This is what I'm saying. I think this is what people are— they're like mad about is they've thought about it and sometimes when other people learn something a reaction of people on the internet is to get very mad about that i mean i do that anytime someone says have you heard of this film yeah i get so it's just annoyed. it's just weird it's like yeah. i've heard of all the films yeah. <laughs> every film I, I, I think that's very human i'm not blaming anybody for this reaction sure. yeah. i'm just saying i think i i'm identifying a thing that is happening it has nothing to do with whether marketing elides the difference between a professional camera shoot and Craig Federighi holding up a phone. Like, <laughs> of course the marketing elides the difference between those two things. It's an ad. Like, I'm, yeah. it's the richest company in the world is making ads. Like, duh. I like, really want yeah. Craig to shoot the next iPhone yeah. keynote. Just he's only just, Craig. He's just chasing Olivia Rodrigo around while she crashes cars. <laughs> <laughs> In a vampire outfit. Uh, all right, that's that. Whatever. You can feel however you want. I hope you enjoy your iPhone. Please shoot more music videos and send them to us. Um, Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, the other group of people that was really mad at us this week that I mentioned in, at the top of the show was SEO professionals who, again, I really encourage you to, one, go read our piece by Amanda Chicago Lewis about the culture of SEO, mm -hmm. which no one ever writes about. And we can get to the piece. But then read the comments from the angry SEO people because the comments are some of the best formatted 
most or like if they could have put H2s in the comments for better search discoverability, they would have. <laughs> it is amazing. The keywords are impeccable. It is the funniest thing about this whole situation is the SEO professionals being mad at us, but doing perfect SEO by instinct in all of the places where they're yelling at us. Ah, it's chef's kiss. So we have this big package all year. It's been the running theme of our year. If you care about AI and you think AI is transformative, which I, I think a lot of people do, and you are looking at the canon of C-plus AI-generated content that is being fired at every platform in the world, you're like, oh, boy, the web's going to be weird. Oh, boy, what's Google going to do? What's Google going to do when it starts doing more of the generated answers instead of just 10 blue links? What's Apple going to do when Google starts doing that and their search revenue deal changes in big ways? Like, if you, if you undo search in any way, the knock-on effects are gigantic. It is the architecture of the web. So we're just like writing about it. Did we talk about the melting egg thing? No. On this show yet? Did you guys see this? This is just the tiniest little version of this thing, and it's it's just my favorite. So Quora, the question and answer website, has been doing uh, work with AI-generated answers to people's questions. It's possible that I'm misremembering this, but I don't think so. There was a question on Quora that said, can you melt an egg? And so... ChatGPT through Quora answered, yes, you can melt an egg, <laughs> which you obviously cannot. Uh, Google indexes Quora because it's a higher-ranking site full of good user-generated content. So now if you Google, can you melt an egg, Google says, yes, you can melt an egg, even though that's not true. So then a bunch of news outlets pick up this story about being able to melt an egg, which feeds more data back into these generative systems. And so now there's all kinds of data on the internet in which phrases like you can melt an egg <laughs> exist on high ranking websites. And so we got to the point where the question, can you melt an egg became like absolute certainty to Google through all of the signals that it wants about how things should work because one little tiny AI system <laughs> said so. They fixed it. They have fixed it since, but that's like there are going to be I, I don't know literally if they did. an infinity of examples Because like I just Googled it, and apparently the most common way to melt an egg is to <laughs> heat it using a stove or microwave. <laughs> that's from tnnsupport.com. It's good. Your trusted source for oh, egg okay. melting. So if you – good, good example, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. <laughs> If you think that these things are worth talking about, you might direct your resources at covering the present state of Google and the web and how we got here, Google search, so that you might be better positioned to cover what happens next, which appears to be a snake eating its tail of melted eggs. <laughs> Delicious. Pretty soon we will all be melting eggs <laughs> thanks to Google. These are just crazy outcomes, right? And they are culture-shaping outcomes. Uh, a real reason that the flat earth conspiracy has as much traction as it does is because every time another NBA player says they believe in the flat earth conspiracy, people Google it, and then a million websites see that in Google Trends, and they write about flat earth stuff. Yep. And that is just a feedback loop that has made more people be like, flat earth is a reasonable dis debate to have because I see it in the information ecosystem. People are stupid. We've written that story. We'll put it in the show notes. It was just one of the weirdest things. I was like, "I'm go explain how search made the flat earth happen. And it, we did. It's kind of weird that people forgot that the Google bomb exists. So we wrote that story. So in our package, right, yeah. we wrote an entire story about how the culture, our broader pop culture, for a minute, the algorithm at the center of it was the Google search algorithm. 
Ryan Broderick wrote that story for yeah. us. And now the algorithm at the center of the culture is the TikTok algorithm. Maybe three years ago, the, the algorithm at the center of the culture was the YouTube algorithm. There's a brief enduring moment where it's the Instagram algorithm that provided you the Kardashians. Just you open Instagram. It's like, do you, here's another one. I just watched them on E. Yeah. But the, the e, but they, they yeah. were like masters of one platform. They haven't jumped That's to true. another. Right. And it's just I think it's important to look at the search algorithm and say this thing once ran the culture. It's still how information is organized around the world. Everyone writes to it. I mean, I think about SEO like it's not my Roman Empire, but it's up there. <laughs> what a phrase. <laughs> See, th- that's, a, that's a TikTok phrase. Yep. The algorithm at the center of the culture is, is it's ever changing, but you can almost always identify it. So writing all these pieces, we'll link to all of them. Last week, we had a piece about restaurants naming themselves near me. Mia Sato wrote it. It's incredible. It's great. Thai food near me is a real restaurant you can go to in New York. Food's actually quite good, Mia says. So we'll link to that. We've got a bunch of these. This week, it was Amanda Chicago-Lewis writing about the culture of people who practice SEO. Not technical SEO tips, of which this piece contained none. <laughs> I, and I, everyone's like responding to it as though this is how to do SEO. No, no, no. This is a piece about the, the culture of the people who practice it professionally and the conferences they go to and how they talk about Google. And, and a five and a half foot long alligator. And, a five, and the conferences they go in yeah. Florida. Generally, Florida as a concept is in this piece quite a lot. And what is, I would just point out to everyone, this is like a well-known thing you can do. You can say, we're sitting in the financial district in New York. I would like to write a piece about the culture of finance bros. It's like a real thing many magazines do all the time Mm -hmm. because they're cartoonish. And then they make movies about it, and they star Leonardo DiCaprio. True. And very rarely do the movies contain technical explanations of what the finance bros are doing all day long. <laughs> How to do finance. <laughs> you can write like um, many television shows are about the culture of being a lawyer. Very rarely do suits ever get any part of the law right. I can't watch the show. It's so bad. It's everywhere. The algorithms just want to make the me Kina watch Torres. suits. It's, but this is just a thing, right? The, the culture of a profession is a reasonable thing to write about. Yeah. So our piece is about the culture of the profession and like how they feel about doing a thing that scammers do to make money and that other people do to just get you to go to their doctor's office or whatever. Right. Piece is great. And it is tr- it's a bunch of characters because the people who are best at SEO make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And they have silly cars and they buy alligators for their conferences. It's and they're nice. just loud characters. And one of the central points of this story is the guy at Google who used to sort of manage the SEO industry. It was a guy named Matt Cutts who talked to us for the story. Mm-hmm. Matt has been out of Google forever. He went to the U.S. Digital Service under Barack Obama. So he was in the government. He was a CTO, I think, at the USDS. And Google, to replace him, hired a whole bunch of people. One of those people is a guy named Danny Sullivan. Danny Sullivan used to be a journalist. He ran a site called Search Engine Land. I used to be a regular reader of Search Engine Land. Now he's a guy who works at Google and sort of interfaces with people who want to do SEO. The people in our story are like, things changed when one guy left and another guy came in, which is a totally reasonable thing to say, right? The posture of the company changed when this sort of ad hoc guy in 2009 was doing it, and then he left, and they built an entire function to replace him, and the face of that function is this guy. Mm-hmm. Danny's been doing this a long time. I, I think having – I know a lot of people who are reported on search. We've done a lot of stories about search. I think the scrutiny of search and what it is and how it works 
is frustrating to people at Google who are, in general, idealistic about what it should do, right? There's a trial. Like, David this week published the list of the, was it, top 10 most lucrative search terms in 2018. Yep. And the idea that search is a deeply commercial business really rankles Google. But it is their entire business. I don't think that's true. No? I don't, like, I actually don't think Google is, like, afraid of the idea that it makes money from search. Like, I actually think that that's one step too far. I think what Google believes earnestly, like at its corporate center, is that what's good for Google is good for the web. Yeah. Yes. And by making Google better and giving more people more access to Google, Google has made the web better. Like Sundar Pichai just said that in court this week. I genuinely believe that that is a thing that Google as a company believes. And so for us to come in and say... Essentially, that what you've done is you've created a game to be won. And what everybody is doing is doing these things in order to win it. And by doing so, they're ruining the internet. Essentially, what we're saying to Google is like, and I, I, I think it's true. I think you look at the internet and it is like provably true at this point. But what we're saying is Google, by trying to grow Google, you've not only grown the web, you've re-incentivized the web yep. to make it worse in order to serve you better. Right. If I was to say to you, how do you win the Instagram algorithm? You have a mental model in your head. Yeah. A absent reels or whatever. But like in that <laughs> in the moment of Instagram's greatest power, you have a mental model of how that incentive structure worked. If I was to say to you, how do you win the TikTok algorithm? You may or may not have a mental model. How do you win the Logan Paul era YouTube algorithm? You probably have a mental model, yeah. right? It's not a good one, but yeah. But it's there, right? Like you do a bunch of pranks with your bros. Like... It, whatever. All those things change and they come and go. But the idea that there's an algorithm, it can be gamed, people try to game it, that leads to a type of content or a culture of those creators. When we go talk to the platform companies, the idea that we're doing a story like this never surprises them. It never rankles them. It never irritates them. It's just the thing that we do. Mm -hmm. when, right. you, when we have been going to do it with search, hey, you, there's an algorithm that creates a bunch of incentives and there's a bunch of creators out there who are trying to game the algorithm, and that means the culture of the web and the content we create looks like it responds to your incentives. Th that's where I think Google is very frustrated. Oh, I think that's right. Yeah. I think because I think what Google would tell you is that it is designed to reflect the best of the web. Yeah. And in reality, what it did was decide what the best of the web is and then force everyone into that specific box. Right. And the particular thing that Danny read our piece. He doesn't like it because he's characterized as being somewhat unhappy with our reporter in the piece. Um, and we link to Danny's response on, on the homepage. You can read that too. But where he and I have been going back on, on threads is Google keeps saying we publish all of these guidelines and we tell people not to do the things that the guidelines don't say. Like the response to every one of our pieces about Google search this year has been that's not what the guidelines say. Which is just... Thousands of pages. And then... Also, in the next breath, they're like, the best thing to do is not read the guidelines. Yeah, just make great content. Just make great stuff. And it's like, well, why do you publish all these guidelines right. if you don't want anyone to read them? And there's a real tension in there. Like, if you are a person who builds a website, our website, a lot of the schema of our website is designed for Google. Like, the, the underpinning of the layouts of our pages are designed to be predictable for Google. Okay, like, I don't feel bad about that. I, I want our stuff to be searchable and discoverable, but I also don't want us to write headlines for the Google search robot. I yeah. want us to write headlines for people. And, like, there's a real tension there. And one of the things that makes that tension worse, I think, for on the web in general, 
is Google doesn't like recognize that tension exists. So that when the people, when scammers write headlines to fool Google, they win. Right. Or when a company, I mean, like, like we see this a lot in, in our industry and elsewhere. I think we all think about SEO a lot. And that is one of the reasons this story means a lot to people at The Verge is because we have to think about SEO. It's important. And we have to think, okay, well, how far do we go? How, 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 because there is that way where you can win the web. Yeah. And you can show, prove everyone that you can melt an egg. We are six months away from one of our major competitors emerging is like a totally AI written content form. Exactly. I, I, I feel it in my bones that that is the thing we will compete against with next year for search traffic. Yep. And, and I mean, that that's exactly what's happening. We're seeing our major competitors go down that road after we already watched them go and do things like, you know, say, hey, check out the hands on for the new iPhone 15 Pro. Two weeks before it was announced, yeah. um, just Wait, so they can gain. Can, can we just do some SEO scam rundowns? Yeah, that our competitors have real competitors have done. Yes. So the, the one Alex is talking about, we have a lot of competitors who, a month before a device, any device is released, they will put up a page, and it's a hands-on page. It's basically a holding page. The headline at the top, a lot of the copy is about the hands-on, and then it'll be like, "Come back on this day <laughs> to check it out." This is just an SEO game. Like, I, I think that's fake. And now we have covered this a lot, too. Mm-hmm. We have big competitors like GeoMedia and CNET and others who are running trials of AI-generated content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their staffs are furious about this. They're like, not happy. The, the people who make the work are not happy about this, but the corporations are doing it. And they all say the same excuse, which is we have to learn how to use this stuff. And it's like, you're learning nothing. Yeah. What have you learned? Well, the other one, I think my, my guess would be one a lot of people have encountered is when you search for some kind of coupons on the internet, the number of sites that you would not expect to have a sneaky hidden coupons page for Bed Bath & Beyond <laughs> that nevertheless has a sneaky hidden yeah. coupon page for Bed Bath & Beyond is like alarming. I just, look, I just bought a solo stub. I took the coupon right from Wired.com. There you go. That was a, a totally weird experience, but I was like, I'm supporting my friends. Yeah. And it's, I mean, this is a thing we've talked about a lot on this show, right? There is like a, there's an internet for humans and there's an internet for robots and Google is the robots. Yeah. Like it's, it's AI is becoming the robots, but Google has been the robots for a really long time and it has demanded a lot of people's time and energy because at the end of it, it's the discovery engine for the internet. And Google like really would love you to believe what they always say, which is just do good stuff and we'll help people find it. And I think anyone who has ever tried to do good stuff on the internet can tell you <laughs> it's not, it's just not nearly that simple. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the dispute. You can all evaluate the disclosure. We have a website. There are people at our company that professionally do SEO. Yeah. And if you Google things, you might find our website. Yeah. Our, our website is designed to be surfaced in Google search. I, I think. Oh, there's one part. Can I, can I tell this story? Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just going to say I love SEO. I I want people to read my stuff. (laughs) All right. Maybe not that far. (laughs) Alex is like running ChatGPT in the corner to replace us all. Um, uh, There's one Danny calls out. When we were redesigning the site, he says, Neil, I emailed me and wanted to know about some SEO question, which is true. I emailed him and said, we're going to have these quick posts. We're redoing this thing. Our internal SEO team, we're having a debate about whether to index the quick posts. This is a true thing. I say, Danny is the search liaison. I know him. I emailed him and said, hey, I've got this question. Um, and he was he was like, "This is, read the guidelines. That's what Danny said, which is the thing that he is supposed to do. Yeah. Professionally, what he says to everybody is read the guidelines. No special treatment for anyone. And I was like, I don't think the guidelines are helping me here because they are designed to tell people who spam affiliate links not they'll get downranked. And our quick posts aren't that, but they're also very short and like, the folk wisdom of SEO is that short things are bad. You know, like there's all this stuff mm-hmm. and we just don't know the answer. And his answer was like, do what's best. 
great. Like that, I, that's a totally, I presume a totally reasonable interaction. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't index the quick post because we didn't want to tank the traffic to our other pages by having something that might be whatever. Okay, that's like a normal sort of like business conversation that you might have. We didn't have any terms. It was just advice, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm operating to the search liaison. It's not a commercial conversation. It's not the wrong side of the house. And I know Danny. So he calls us up as if to say like us caring about SEO somehow negates us from criticizing the practice of SEO. In fact, it makes us more like qualified to critique it. I feel much more qualified. Yeah, than, we like do the thing. Yeah, like I do it all the time. I'm feeling also, very qualified. Also, and, and we have a lot it. of commenters who are like, but you have yeah. posts that we are about best laptops. We want you to read laptops. our website. Uh, we do want you to read our website, but also just like, just turn the knob all the way. I will concede that we are the worst SEO scammers on the internet. The worst. We're going to find you and we're going to sell you some car insurance <laughs> tomorrow. You looking for a wireless plan? Um, Get that solo stuff. That would be great if we sold wireless plans. We'd be like, don't buy any of them. <laughs> <laughs> None of these will let you do surgery on a grape. Um, it, I'll concede it to you all the way. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change the idea that people who practice SEO have a culture. Anyway, you can tell that I care about this a lot. Yeah. David, I want to come back to a thing that you said real quick, and then we can wrap this up. Like, Google doesn't care if you think about search for the business. You were in the courtroom this week where literally the CEO of Google was talking about Google search as a business and what it means and how it works and this big deal with Apple. What's going on there? It was really interesting because the deal with Apple has been the story of this trial so far. Like, fundamentally, if you really want to boil this entire antitrust trial down to one question, it's, is it anti-competitive for Google to give Apple what we now know to be $18 billion a year in order to be the default search engine in Safari. Like, that's it. That's the whole question. Because even if that one deal goes away, everyone else testifying is saying that blows the search market wide open. But so Sunar Pichai gave this, like, long, mostly unspicy testimony. Like, Satya Nadella was very spicy. Sundar, less spicy. But... Essentially, what he argued over and over is that, like, Google is a business. It's a competitive business. There are a lot of things out there. Part of Google's line is that, like, everyone is coming for search all the time. Prabhakar Raghavan, who runs search for Google, talked a lot about TikTok and vertical search engines and this idea that, like, people look for information in lots of places. And that's fundamentally what Google does. It's very competitive on and on. And Sunar Pichai just kept saying, look, we give all these companies all this money because it's it makes us more money. <laughs> and like, it's just that simple. Like Google wouldn't give Apple $18 billion a year if Google didn't make more than $18 billion a year as a result, right? Like John Schmidtlein, the the lawyer for Google asked him about like, you have a fiduciary duty to shareholders to make money, right? And sooner I was like, yes, <laughs> like, I, we do these deals because they are good value and Google is a business. And when people use our search engine, we make money from it. Like, that fact is not unclear to anyone, right? I think if you want to talk about the ways in which Google search has gotten worse over time, which many people perceive that it has, if you want to talk about whether there are too many ads or Google hides the fact that there are ads or AI is going to ruin the quality of your search results, like that's all really interesting questions. But Google's coming out here and basically saying, like, we are a business. We make an awful lot of money. <laughs> what do you want from us? Like, the the idea that Google 
started out as this company at in the relatively early days of the web and said, we are going to bet on the web. We are going to bet that we can be essentially infrastructure for the entire web, and that if we help more people do more stuff on the web, that will accrue value back to Google. That has been one of the great bets of business yeah. of all time. Like, holy God, was that a good idea from Google 25 years ago. And the question in front of Google, and that was kind of put to sooner a bunch of different ways, is like, has that turned? Like, are you no longer good for the web because you're so big, because you're so powerful, because you're so sort of singular in your power as that infrastructural layer. And that's obviously a much harder question to answer. And obviously Sundar is not going to say, yes, we're too big. It's a huge problem. But that thing that they bet on the web and the web got to take over the world and so did Google is like the central tension of all of this. Because it's like, at what point does that go from... I think we all rooted for Google for a really long time because it was true that like, I think we have. I think a lot of our listeners are still rooting for Google for sure. Like it's it was it was a company that believed in the internet yeah. at a time that I think it was good to have a company that in, believed in many in the ways. When we interact with people from various companies, the people from Google are easily the most sincere. Yeah, and they want the web to be a good place full of good things that people can access and use. Like I think that rules. When does that turn on you and yep. you become? You have to tamp down the web to keep it the way that you want it. That's the question. And like, has Google tipped over that line was what Sundar was kind of being asked indirectly over and over. And it was just, it was fascinating to see it distilled down. I would point, we're going to link to this too. David wrote a story about Google AMP as part of our Google package when Google clearly went over the line. Yeah. And had to roll it all back. But that's such a fun example, right? Because Google is like, okay, if we don't do this, Facebook will. Right, like it's a they, that's a response to a real threat from a company that was like actively trying to destroy the open web. Like that's just like naked aggression against the open <laughs> web. And so Google did what it decided to do. I think was way too far over the line. But to respond to that in some way and say we have to preserve the open web, not wrong and not out of bounds with what Google had always said that it was. But it's just it's that same thing. It's like where do you go from? What's good for the web is good for Google and everybody wins to we have to keep the web just like this so that Google can keep winning. Yeah. And I think the the interesting thing about the sort of like dominant algorithm theory is it's weird that the web is shaped for search, that there's no other discovery engine, that there's no other competing incentive. You can't just make a weird website and sort of like assume Google will find it. Right. And it's really telling that. Google now is even struggling to do that. It's trying to find all these new ways to show you stuff. It's trying to do the more multimedia search. And it's just like, I don't know. I've, have you found yourself on one of those pages where you do a Google search and instead of getting a bunch of links to stuff, they just show you like vertical videos yeah. in yeah. a row? It feels bad. I don't like it. Yeah. I, I click out every time, especially if yeah. it's like I'm trying to figure out how to grill something. You know, I, I know <laughs> why it feels out. bad. It's because you don't know that you can ever get back there. There's yeah, something really yeah. permanent about doing a Google search and finding a page and be like, all right, I looked through some of these. I'll come back to it or whatever. For me, it was just, oh, God, I'm going to have to watch a video. I just want to, like, go and scan up. <laughs> I'm told the video is the highest bandwidth. Yeah, that's just because you're old. Sorry, though, sorry. I'm just old. That that's that's yeah. Okay, we got to take a break. I'll just say this at the very end. We were getting documents out of this trial. Apple had an internal presentation that said Android is a massive tracking device. And they signed a big deal with Google. Fantastic. <laughs> 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 it's very good. All right, we'll be right back. 
Support of The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI power tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. All right, we're back. We went very long talking about Google search. Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing we're doing the back half of the show is two lightning rounds. This one is the streaming lightning round. Pew, pew. That Alex, was my streaming. Alex Kranz, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> um, a lot happened this week. I'm going to kick it off with Casey Bloys, who is currently running HBO, and during the early days of the the pandemic, was a little too into his phone and was directing people to direct interns to harass, or not to harass, but to troll. Critics online of HBO shows. This is like Warner Media classic move. Yeah, hysterical. He has since apologized. Oh my! Because this this all came out because one of those interns is suing the company for wrongful termination. So it all came out from that. Is in this big Rolling Stone piece all about the company. A lot of really good reporting in that piece. You should go track it down. But since then, Casey Boyce has addressed it, and he was basically like, "I was too into my phone, and now I just DM." <laughs> When I'm angry at critics instead. Oh, my. Is that – that's really – that's the, the you know, huge feat of self-realization that yeah. he's gone through. This is just direct message. Just yeah. Yeah. You myself. Yeah, so, so, he's, so he's DMing his criticism more. And um, honestly, I would rather – I would rather – have Tim Cook come into my DMs, be like, "That was a real rude thing you said about that phone." The flash was good. Yeah, I would. I, I think I'd rather like <laughs> prefer that. What are you? What are you? What are you trying to say, Casey Blois? <laughs> okay, I have two. I have two things to say to Casey Blois. Casey, I know you're listening, so pull over your car, take notes. Yeah. Thing number one is use your own burners, man. Come on, like, <laughs> I'm all for having burners. A- NBA athletes do it. 
everybody has a burner that they use just for looking at accounts, that, just in case they like one by accident. Everybody, everybody has burners, but you got to have your own burners. And if you're not going to have your own burners, at least like do it for real and get like a bot farm. You know what I mean? Like he he did this like half measure that it's like if you're going to go for it, go for it. Otherwise, just pretend you're like a random stranger and defend yourself and you'll inevitably get caught and it'll be very funny. This is the weirdest, worst way to do it, to like yell at your assistants to defend you on the internet. Like, don't yeah. do that. It's not great. No. He says he says it's much better now because he has, uh, many of them are gracious enough to engage with him back and forth. So it's much better now instead of having the intern say, you suck. Because that was, that was the gist of the ones they confirmed were coming from, from this person. I mean, okay. You I'm going to disagree it's with you. It's not Steven. even good. I want an army of interns <laughs> with burner accounts. <laughs> To tweet at our critics. <laughs> and if you're interested in this job, you can just email us at vergecastattheverge.com. And we'll see, we'll see what happens next. We'll pay you in merch. Also, those critics are not being very gracious because they didn't know that the army of anonymous interns was tweeting, you suck at them. Yeah, because it, it was wasn't like, like it wasn't like Casey was like, hey, so all those weird anon accounts that have been tweeting you suck at you. That was me. I prefer to start <laughs> DMing now. And they're like, oh yes, of course, Casey, come in. Like, <laughs> No, he just started DMing then. All right, here's my it's staying on HBO Max. Here's my lightning round one. Uh, in the grand scheme of everything getting more expensive, mm. if you're on HBO Max and you had ad free, now they're gonna charge you more money for 4K. God damn it! If you had a legacy ad free account, how much am I paying now? I, I miss uh, this and I'm very upset. You have to go to twenty bucks a month. So if you're on the standard. If you're on the standard ad-free one that you used to get 4K on, which I think is 16 bucks a month, you're going to lose 4K. You have to upgrade the ultimate at 20 bucks a month, and then you get 4K back. I'm not going to have any money for my children. I don't have any. Did we get— Mine is named Max. I get nothing for this. I should get a substantial discount. You should. Where did we land on our would you cancel your streaming services before you gave up 4K? A lot of people debate? agreed with me. That's that's what I'm going to say is a lot okay. of people agree that, yeah, they would rather cancel than give up 4K. Yeah, that and was the most I of the feedback I heard, too. Honestly, the audacity of Max, who was late to 4K and half-assed 4K and is still half-assing 4K, to expect me to pay more. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to be so furious the whole time. This is the problem with millennials, Alex. Yeah. This is the same energy I you bring. You and your avocado coast, your yeah. $20 a month of garbage 4K. No children. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Do you know what I've realized I'm, recently? Yeah. So I've been sort of systematically going and downgrading everything <laughs> to the ad plans because I just want the ads. Like, I'm good. Give me, give me the ads. Yeah. 4K you want that ads. Myrtle Beach timeshare. The strangest thing I have discovered is that I kind of love it because it's a phone break. I now, like, four times an hour— I get a phone break, so I don't look at my phone during shows anymore because I know that in seven minutes, I'm going to get three minutes to look at Reddit or check my texts or whatever, and then we're going to—it's perfect. It's just like a tiny little intermission where whatever's happening on the TV happens on the TV, but I get to look at TikTok. Your house sounds horrible. You're watching like 480p Survivor <laughs> on a garbage fast service looking oh, yeah. at your phone and for three-minute chunks. Anna's sitting next to me doing Spelling Bee, uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting here. I do connections during one. I look at Reddit during another one. I check my email and Slack during another one, and then it's the end of the hour, and I've watched the whole show. It's perfect. 
I don't want this. All right, what's your lightning round one beyond your bad idea about watching ads? <laughs> ads. What if there was an ad break, but just no ads? There's <laughs> just silence on the TV for two minutes. Everybody minute. gets a phone break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sponsored uh, mine, by Intel. Mine is uh, Disney appears to be actually for real about to own all of Hulu, which we've kind of known is coming for a while. But it seems like um, approximately one minute after Comcast was allowed to exercise the clause that would force Disney to buy the rest of Hulu, it did so. Now comes the part where Disney and Comcast have to figure out what Hulu is worth, which I think is going to be really fascinating. They set it up in such a way, basically, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I understand this right, which is that a bunch of years ago when they made this deal that would allow Disney to eventually buy all of Hulu, they valued Hulu at about $27 billion, which meant that Mm -hmm. the roughly third of the service that Comcast owned was worth like eight and change billion dollars. Now, that's the minimum price. Disney is going to have to pay. If the price has gone down since then, sucks for Disney, they still have to pay that money. I don't think it has. If that price has gone up, Disney is going to have to pay the eight and change plus whatever percentage difference there is based on the new valuation of Hulu. So the question now is, what is Hulu worth in the market? And we're about to find out. It's a deeply weird time in the streaming world. Streaming is both like ascendant and a mess. I have no idea, but I think figuring out how much money this is, especially for Disney, which is not in a super good position to be writing checks for eight plus billion dollars at this moment in time, it's about to get really weird. I think it's going to force Disney to actually think about what it's doing and what its strategy (laughs) is. I don't think Disney's been doing that lately. It is a weird time to announce this deal when the cover of Variety is, uh, is Marvel screwed? Yeah. Which is a piece worth reading. Yeah. It's a great piece. Um, I I wrote kind of an addendum to it. It's on the site right now. Uh, They they don't know how Marvel – like Marvel's just in a bad spot. And and the piece was very kind of weird because it refused to blame Kevin Feige, who who runs Marvel Studios, for anything. But then everything seemed to quietly like – they'd be like, yeah, there's someone at the top and we don't know what to do. And it's like <laughs> weird story. But yeah, I, I think Disney has to figure out – it's got these – it's got multiple services. Um, for a long time it was like this is for adults and Disney Plus is for babies. And maybe it's going to merge the two together. It's also got the Hulu Live subscription. And there's a, a reasonable amount of subscribers there but not as many as you think. Hulu is still way below Disney Plus and subscriptions. So it's going to be like – they they already own all of they own everything on it because it's all Fox and, and ABC shows so they own everything it's just like well, what do you I don't know I, I think that all the people who have to to figure this the price out are gonna fight like the Comcast and the Disney yeah. folks I want to be in that room watching those two groups fight each other because that's gonna be really cool but one assumes that Disney is planning to sell ESPN and Comcast knows this and they would like some of that money to come back to Comcast. That's fair. Disclosure, NBC Universal division of Comcast is a minority investor in Vox Media, our parent company. We produced a Netflix show, which you should go watch. It's called The Future Of. I was the executive producer of that show. It's really quite good. Um, but I'm hopelessly biased in favor of that show. Which you should watch on which Netflix. Which you should watch. Sure. Um, yeah, that's it. I think that's all for now. Yeah, <laughs> we, all, we all have televisions. I think those are the ones mm-hmm. that are implicated in this conversation. I we, do uh, again. Uh, our site is discoverable in search. We have a TikTok account. <laughs> we <laughs> use YouTube. Uh, two more. <laughs> uh, we won an Emmy this week. 
Hell Becca yeah, we won did. an Emmy yeah. for her YouTube series, Full Frame. Uh, big bias in favor of winning Emmys. Just know, you can't trust anything we say if it's not going to win us an Emmy. One more thing before we move on from the streaming stuff. Uh, there was a big debate in our comments on the Hulu Disney thing about whether if you're going to com- if you're Disney and you're going to combine all your streaming services, should you call it Disney Plus or should you call it Hulu? I think this is the most obvious question ever, but I'm curious what you two think. Ooh, I think if if Disney knew what they were doing, they would call it Hulu. No. Yes, 100% because Disney itself has a very specific brand identity and that's what they You mean the terrified. best brand identity potentially of any brand anywhere on planet Earth? But also Disney is the good brand. That's literally what it is. Yeah. It's, it's the good brand. It's goodness and happiness and I joy. I literally and heard one of Becky's aunts say <laughs> out loud, uh-huh. "What is the difference between Hulu and Roku?" Oh. And I looked at her and I was like, you know what? That is a surprisingly deep and meaningful and good <laughs> question. It's a good question. It, it is. is. Right. I think that's a good question. Like it's just TV stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, but the problem with Disney is that Disney is not just Disney. It's it's ABC. Well, for now. It's ABC. These it's are all FX. Solvable it's problems. all of these things. And they're running into the exact same problem as HBO or as Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers obviously went with the incredible Max. <laughs> and here's the real opportunity for them to be like, we're not going to do that. Disney Plus was always kind of a stupid name because it was. And instead, we're just we're just going to click to Hulu. Here's what they're going to do. They're called the Everything app. It's going to be called X. It's going to do payments. <laughs> you can date Minnie Mouse. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Elon will be. It's all going to be great. All right. We got to take a break. We'll be right back with, with Lightning Round Part 2. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. 
Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, we're back. Can I start with my favorite thing of the entire week? Yeah. Yes, please. Absolute favorite thing of the entire week. It's not even a thing we covered. Oh. It's a, it's a thing that TFL Truck covered on TikTok. By the way, TFL Truck, one of my all-time favorite. They're just, it's just a website about trucks. It, they rule. It's great. Uh, they're at some car show. The guy's like, I'm here with a Ford F-150 Lightning at the Borla booth. And he goes to the Borla guy and he's like, so you've built an exhaust system for the F-150 Lightning. And the guy looks at him and goes, it's really more of an aftermarket sound solution. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, it can play futuristic sounds too. It, this, this is a thing that happens in this video. It, I lost my mind. I've watched him say it's really more of an aftermarket sound solution a thousand times. <laughs> Did he play it? The confidence. It's really more of an aftermarket sound solution. What he means by this is that there are speakers mounted under the bumper of the truck. What? And then when he pushes the accelerator down, it makes engine sounds. Remember. And this is all very complicated. Mm-hmm. Right, he's like, look, we're plugged into the systems of the truck. We're, we're we're measuring the distance the accelerator pedal is pushed to the floor, the load on the engine. We've got simulated gear shift sounds on an electric truck. <laughs> and then he's like, and there's there's buttons and knobs. So there's one knob switches between four presets. The other one is the volume. Uh-huh. You can change the presets on your phone to futuristic sounds. It's really more of an aftermarket sound solution. Uh, and then he's like, here's what you can set it to right now. Mind you, this is a Ford truck. He's like, a Chevy Silverado. What? A Dodge Charger. And I'm like, there was a meeting at the exhaust company. Borla is a famous exhaust company. And they had a meeting. And they're like, this EV thing is killing us. No one's going to buy exhaust pipes from us anymore. Headers out the window. We're not doing this. What's our plan? And someone's like, aftermarket sound solutions. We're going to put speakers on the trucks, and we're going to make Ford trucks sounds like they have Chevy V8s in them. How are they going to roll There was a meeting, Alex. (laughs) I love it. Just go watch this video. It's not even our video. I just quick posted a TikTok from another publication because I can't get enough of this guy saying it's really more of an aftermarket sound solution. There was a period of time, like two months ago, I would say, where, Neelai, you missed a couple of shows in a row. You were super busy. Uh... You didn't do the iPhone review this year. You were doing code. You were moving. A lot was going on. And we got a bunch of emails being like, is, is Neelai leaving? Is he going off to like some big job? And I want everyone to know that when Neelai does leave, it will be f- to do the thing he just described <laughs> just now. <laughs> Neelai will leave us to go do aftermarket sound solution truck yeah. TikTok. And that will be the end. If, that's if, the only if thing. If ever Neelai disappears, look for him on truck TikTok. <laughs> that's, that's what it will be. I just got to go watch the video. Well, it's. Just the confidence. It's really more of an aftermarket sound solution. You're very – like, I feel confident listening to you say it. I just – like, if you're buying – The way it just – The number of companies that are solving the sort of, like, political culture war of EVs mm-hmm. by being like, here's what we're going to do. Make we're going to put speakers on the car, and we're going to make them sound like they burn gas. And that'll fix it. Dodge is doing this. They are. They call it the fret sonic exhaust system, and they won't admit that they're putting speakers under the car. At least Borla's like, yeah, it's a— uh... What does it sound when it's, like, crossing water? <laughs> like the speakers are drowning? <laughs> it... 
That was really right. good, actually. It was really good. It was really good. <laughs> also, well, Nina, you want did you us say... to drive your battery-powered truck into some water and make it bubble. <laughs> Everyone very confident that that's a good situation. Nina, did you say it's called Fret Sonic or Frat Sonic? Frat Sonic. With Frat a Z. Sonic. That's that's fantastic. Frats. It's whatever, man. All right, what's yours? <laughs> um, okay, mine is Chris Person, who friend of the Verge, has a great story up on the site where he hacked a robot vacuum to make it more like secure because robot vacuums, you know, they're going around your house. You're hopefully wearing pants when they're going around your house. Yeah. Always wear pants. Uh, and and they're mapping your house. They're mapping everything. And then they're uploading all of that to the cloud. And while it is typically pretty secure, it is also a privacy, potential privacy nightmare. Yeah. And and so he had to go use this this project called Val- Valetudo. It's a great name. Valetudo. 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 And and so he, he used this project to hack a robot vacuum and 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 make it disconnect it from the cloud and still make it work and do all this stuff. And it worked. But he, you know, it's hacking. This is he's not just it. yeah, he's he's in the system. He's physically removing boards and adding new boards. And he was working on this for a while. And he's working with, I believe, Dan Seifert. And Dan would just be like, oh yeah, I'm just getting all these pictures of robot vacuum guts. <laughs> and you're like, what is going on over there? Has he thought about adding an aftermarket sound solution to his robot vacuum? <laughs> <laughs> just, Full Silverado Viet powering through the living room. It's gonna sound great, but but the story is really cool, and I, I love the idea of it, especially as the other day, like I kept having to stand in front of my robot vacuum cleaner, and it would like bump into me, and I was like, oh my god, none of these photos can ever like be leaked because it's just the worst look for you, <laughs> <laughs> like, just horrible. Because it's like it's from your feet up, yeah. so it's like. It's 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 basically even worse than that one when you pull your phone out and you go to check something and the camera is facing you and you're not expecting it and you've got four chins. Mm-hmm. There's like twelve Classic. chins on your ass, <laughs> on your face. There's a lot of chins happening and, and nobody needs to see that. So I might I feel like I kind of want to hack mine now. My robot has become a supervillain in my house. Um, uh-huh. The noise that the little like boop 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 thing that it does right before it starts scares the hell out of my dog <laughs> for some reason she like literally as soon as any it, the vacuum doesn't have to move as soon as she hears that noise which it for some reason will occasionally just make randomly out of nowhere she just goes flying upstairs and hides in the bed under the covers and will not come back for hours Aww. and our 11 month old he is now crawling like a maniac and he sees this little glowing light and he presses the button because that's fun and then it moves and it hits him and he doesn't like that. No. And then it's like, oh, well, I have to get around this. So he, it just keeps moving a little bit, like an inch at a time, and just bashing into his legs over and over. So I have to I have to figure out a place to put the robot vacuum that is somehow accessible to no one but can still vacuum my floors. So if anybody has any, like, <laughs> sneaky hiding places I think you just get, vacuum, like, a drone apparatus for your child. Oh, yeah, I'll get the ring flying camera. That'll go super yeah, good. Just, my dog will love that. That'll go really well. Every time I've ever bought an expensive vacuum, it's been shittier than the like $30 vacuum we bought when we were like very young. <laughs> we, yeah. were, we were in a hotel in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago, and the the one vacuum that they had in there was this like piece of crap dust devil that weighed nothing. And all anyone talked about all weekend was how nice it was because it was yeah. so light and small. Yeah. Just like this piece of junk vacuum is like my favorite thing I've ever used to clean floors because it weighs nothing. I have a thousand dollar LG vacuum with Wi-Fi that empties itself into a stand. <laughs> I thought this was so cool. It looks so good, man. Oh, I just like looking at it. Yeah. 
we have a $30 shark that just yep. outperforms that thing yep. coming and going. Yep. Just all that money is in the Wi-Fi chip and not in the part that sucks up dirt. Yeah. It's I, I have it run four times a week, and that kind of helps. Yeah. I've never had any luck with robot vacuums, and now I've heard about the ass-chin situation, and I never will. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't go right. look at the images. David, what's your lightning round item? If we could title <laughs> this episode of the podcast The Ass-Chin Situation, I would very much appreciate that. <laughs> that would be great for SEO. No one's Googling Ashton situations. Uh, mine is, um, I was picking between two Google things. One is that now you can put the Chrome URL bar on iOS down at the bottom. Most controversial decision on the internet for a while there, if you guys remember. Mm -hmm. uh, but the one I ended up choosing was Google is now selling, like in pre-registries, .ing domains. Um, a fun fact about me is I'm obsessed with domain names. I find them totally fascinating. And there was this thing like 10 years ago where ICANN was like, we're going to put out a million new kinds of domains. You can be .pizza. You can be .restaurant. You can be .online. And we're going to reinvent the way people think about web, web pages. Instead of trying to be a .com, you can just be, you know, alfredos.pizza, and that's your restaurant. That didn't work at all. And if you go to, like, a messaging system or email or Slack or whatever, most of those don't even show up as URLs, which I would argue is, like, Pretty spectacular failure. So now Google's out here trying to make .ing happen, and their thing is like, if you want it to be, you know, if you're a flight booking company, you do book.ing or fly.ing, and they're charging a ton of money for it. R.ing, which would be ring, obviously, it's like if you want to, if you're Victoria, not Victoria's Secret, if you're Tiffany's or whoever, $130,000 a year for this domain name. And I just think- Whoa. Google has been way out in front of these. They're called top-level domains or TLDs. And all these, like, alternate TLDs Google has been out in front of for forever. .xyz has actually been fairly successful as a kind of catch-all thing. .ai had a moment. .social has kind of had a moment. And now Google is going to try really, really, really hard to make .ing a thing. I, I really want to have... They see me roll dot. That's very good, Alex. But That's very I don't good. have two hundred thousand dollars a year. Like Neilai, can can I have some money? <laughs> I got an idea. Wait, didn't Google leave the domains business? Google domains business. I had not even sold. I think just gave to Squarespace, which some people are very mad about. Yeah, but it still has its like overarching TLD registry thing. So it it like administers these domain names, but it doesn't gotcha. do the buying and selling and management of them. Are they going to have messaging? <laughs> That's a good one. They should just call it Gchat. Just put it out there. <laughs> uh -huh. put, the, put full manifestation. Just call it Gchat. All will be forgiven. The government will give up your, their antitrust trials. We'll stop covering SEO. Just call it Gchat. We're so easily bought. <laughs> That's uh, that's your disclosure. If they just call it Gchat, we'll back all the way off. Huh? <laughs> deal? No deal. Uh, last one I want to call out. X had its first all hands with Elon and Linda Yaccarino. Alex Heath has the full transcript of that meeting. You should go read it just to witness the wild vacillations of Elon making stuff up and Linda having to pretend it was part of the plan. Yep. There's one point where I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but Elon was like, I'd like to start with this. And it was obviously a surprise to her. And she was like, I'd raise my hand to be a part of that. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. <Just> perfect. <laughs> it's very good. That's what you want out of your CEO. Just complete befuddlement and surprise. 
Love chaos. That's a good piece. We got a bunch of good stuff on the site this week. Uh, Liz, in addition to the things people are very unhappy about, Liz has been covering the FDX trial. Sam Bankman-Fried was on the stand. He is lighting himself on fire. There's no other way to describe what is happening in this trial. That, that dude's going to jail. But you should read the coverage because Liz is a great writer and she's having the time of her life covering this trial. And also, it's probably going to be over very there's, – there's a non-zero chance that by the time you're listening to this – a verdict has come in. And we're going to talk about that on the show next week yeah. for sure. And <laughs> it's going to be guilty. <laughs> I agree with that. It would be a shock if it was not. Um, we have a great video Andy Hawkins made about delivery robots, which is very cool. You should go watch that. Like I said, Becca won an Emmy this week, which is incredible. Go watch them full frame in celebration. And then, like I said, we were talking about this whole day. We have a big feature this week on SEA. You should go read it. We'll link it in the show notes. And then, uh, speaking of Andy, he has a great piece about the EV transition and the weird liminal spot it's in right now, where it seems like it's ready to start happening, but instead, cult- culture war. Instead, culture war. America, 2023. Um, go read that. But it's also the car makers have kind of blown it, right? They assumed that all the demand for Teslas could be applied to their existing business models. And so they made big, stupid trucks instead of, like, little EVs that people want to buy. Like hundred, like Chevy is like, look at our hundred thousand dollar Silverado, instead of look at our Bolt, which is, I th- I, it feels like an error. Like the people who want to buy EVs are not up there. Yeah. Anyway, that's a great piece. You should read it. It's, there's also obviously some coverage of charging networks in there. And lastly, before we break, we want to know how you feel about the red chest on YouTube. Are you watching it on YouTube? Are you catching the Easter eggs in the background? Or are you sticking with the podcast player? What do you like about the show on YouTube? What don't you like? We know you want us to cut to more pictures of things and add chapters. We'll do all that stuff. But beyond that, what do you want from us on YouTube? We're growing on YouTube. It's great. It's fun to be in the comments on YouTube. But we want to make it better. Let us know what you think in the comments on YouTube. Bringing the multiple Ashtons to YouTube. Amazing. <laughs> That's it. Thank you so much. It's for Chest. Bye, girl. And that's it for the VergeCast this week. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-VERGE-11. The VergeCast is a production of The Verge and Vox Media Podcast Network. Our show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. That's it. We'll see you next week.